following live session recording, Bill Emiot, children's pastor for First Baptist Church Houston, Texas, talks about gospel-centered kids' ministry. In our church kids' ministries, we all mean to be gospel-centered, but are we really? In this session, the listener will learn what putting Jesus at the center of your kids' ministry really means. Learn how being intentional in four areas can result in Christ-centered, transformational kids' ministry. Let's join Bill now. Thank you, Linda. Um, I'm so excited to be here. I grew up in Atlanta, well, actually College Park. Um, I'm a Southside kid, and I know all about the uh, about this part of, of Atlanta, and I love it. Um, uh, served here in Atlanta for 14 years at two different churches as a children's minister, um, one in Douglasville and one in Cartersville before I went to Lifeway. Um, served um, at Lifeway for 16 and a half years, thought that's where I was going to served the rest of my ministry with Lifeway and God had a different plan and uh, about a year ago he started working in my heart and started talking with me and through through the through various people and um, wow I can't believe it myself I know you can't <laughs> that a church like Houston's First Baptist Church would want a fat 56 year old bald-headed man <laughs> to be their children's minister I'm absolutely thrilled and um, one of the things that I talk with uh, churches for years and years about is this idea of gospel-centered kids ministry. <clears throat> several years ago, um, not several now, maybe four years ago, I guess that's several, I read a statistic that um, uh, Ed Stetzer released through Christianity Today. And it was very concerning to me. It was very concerning to me. The statistic stated that... Um, Kids who went through preschool student, preschool children and student ministry and then moved on out, you know, into adulthood, left the church at a 70% rate. <laughs> These are the kids that we have nurtured through preschool ministry and through children's ministry and through student ministry and they're leaving the church in droves. And I, I became very concerned about that. Um, and first thought, my first thought was, what are the student ministers doing that are having the kids leave church? You know, it's got to be them because we're perfect, right? In children's ministry, we do it really right. So what are the student ministers doing? And it didn't take me long to go from uh, concern to conviction. Because as a children's ministry leader and a preschool ministry leader, we have a responsibility too in this idea of them leaving the church. Seven out of ten kids. Last year I taught third grade at First Baptist Church Nashville. And in my third grade class I had ten kids that regularly attended. Ten third graders in my class. And as I sit and think in my mind's eye, those 10 boys and girls that were sitting in that class, and to think that statistically they're going to grow up in my church, they're going to leave the church, seven of them are going to leave the church. Now, the good news is that five of those seven come back at some point to the church. According to this study, five come back. The struggle I was watching at my home church in, at First Nashville is they weren't coming back to our church. They were looking for something else that we weren't offering. Two of them, though, will leave the church and never come back. I'm not satisfied with that. 
Over the past 16 years, I've been teaching second grade, third grade, fourth grade Sunday school. That's kind of my niche. I think that um, Sunday school is the most important ministry of the church at some level. I think as Sunday school goes, so goes the church. If you have a healthy Bible study program, you'll have a healthy church. I still believe that today as a children's minister. I'm going to pour my life into that aspect of ministry uh, because I think that is the church. Um, uh, organized to do the work God's called us to do and, and ministering to the people. And, um, Sunday school is, is where it's at. I teach, um, have taught children's Bible drill for the last 15 years at my church on Sunday afternoon. We do it on Sunday afternoon during that Bible drill season. I think that teaching boys and girls uh, how to use their Bible and you know how can they do God's will if they don't know God's will? How can they know God's will if they don't hear God's will and what better way to hear God's will than to read his letter to us individually so I'm all about Bible children's Bible drill been doing that for a long time I taught three thir- uh, four and five year old choir for the past four years I love teaching those little guys how to sing and worship and, and I think that's important and those are all things that are valuable I think that we need to to say right up front that I'm not saying let's throw out children's choir and let's throw out Bible drill and let's throw out Sunday school. But something's not sticking. Something didn't stick. I've been doing children's ministry now for 30 years and I'm part of the I'm part of the statistic and it concerns me to think that we could do the, I don't know, what do I got? Another 11, 12 years maybe? And I'm not satisfied with thinking that 11 or 12 years, the statistic might worsen. But I'd like to do something. I'd like to look at this, this idea of kids' ministry in a way that would turn the ship. That would turn the ship. What is it going to take? Well, I, I don't think it's getting rid of the programming we have, but I think it might be refocusing that program to something that does stick. And in my experiences, personally and professionally, what sticks is Jesus. What sticks is a relationship, a true transforming relationship that causes boys and girls to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they go out and become shaper, uh, culture shapers, not shaped by the culture, and that we see the kingdom expanded through the lives of the boys and girls, that that's what I want to see happen. And I want us to talk tonight a little bit about how we might do that, four different areas of, of where we might do that. And guess what? I don't ever do, Linda, I never do a handout, but I have one for this, and I almost forgot. And, you know, I'm kind of, uh, feel free to use it or make an airplane about, with it. I don't care. But I think that it'll keep you focused on where we're going. With that said, let's pray and get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to teach boys and girls. And God, I thank you for the privilege of of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have to share with them. That we have the opportunity to share and and give them um, a life-transforming, sticking, God-loving world, ministry, life that they can have. God, I pray that the things that we say in this room tonight are pleasing to you and helpful to these who've gathered. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I want us to start with gospel-centered teachers, gospel-centered leaders. 
Um, first of all, let me share with you two books where most of this content's come from. If you want to dig deeper and come up with your own your own f- feelings about this idea of gospel-centered kids ministry, there's a book by that title, Gospel-Centered Kids Ministry, by Brian Dembozik, and then Gospel-Centered Teaching is by Trevin Wax. So the two of these books have really uh, formed a lot of what we're going to say tonight. I want us to start with gospel-centered leaders. What do gospel-centered leaders look like? While God cares more about our character than our competency, that doesn't mean that we should strive to be, uh, we shouldn't strive to be excellent in everything we do. One of my favorite verses, whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for man. Anything we do, we ought to do it with enthusiasm and to the best that we can. So what might that look like with, with uh, boys and girls in a gospel-centered kids' ministry. Well, first off, I would say that a gospel-centered kids' ministry, ministry leader has experienced gospel transformation. They've experienced gospel transformation, and we've got to make sure that the leaders that we recruit and enlist have experienced gospel transformation. And sometimes I think we just take for granted that they have when in reality... We need to make sure that they have. A lot of people have been, are members of the church and a lot of people have been baptized, but we need to make sure that the leaders who work with our boys and girls are gospel-centered and they've experienced gospel transformation. But not only are they experiencing God, have experienced it, but number two, they are growing in the gospel. They're growing in the gospel. Now, what, what do you mean by that, Bill? I, what I mean is that we have boys and leaders of boys and girls who aren't just getting up on Sunday morning and teaching what the, what the story says or what the curriculum says, but they're also teaching from an overflow of what God's taught them in their heart. You can't really take a child or anybody else, for that matter, somewhere where you've not gone or not willing to go. So we want the boys and girls in our ministry to experience gospel transformation, yes, but we want them to be growing in the gospel, reading their Bible, praying, uh, uh, exhibiting spiritual disciplines in their life, practicing spiritual habits and disciplines in their life, like stewardship and, and uh, uh, worship and prayer and Bible reading and all those things that we need our boys and girls to see in our leadership. Too many times we've said for too long that, oh, they wouldn't be good in the, I don't know, in the adult Sunday school teacher, so let's put them in down with the children. And I think that's not the kind of leader that we want to present to boys and girls. I said it in the last class, and I'll say it again today. Kids learn more about what they see us do than they'll ever learn by what they hear us say. We need to be models for boys and girls. We need for them to see us living out our faith, and we need them to be growing Christians. Next, I would say a gospel-centered kids ministry leader accepts a call, or the call, a call to kids ministry, to children's ministry. Now, there's a lot of a lot of different kind of leaders in your ministry. Some of them are um, been there forever because they believe God called them to do it. I remember Miss Carol at my last at the church in Cartersville. She taught third grade, and I remember going to her one uh, one fall, one summer, saying, "Now, Carol, are you going to teach again next year?" And she looked at me and really kind of belligerently said, "Am I dead?" 
I said, no, I don't think so. She said, well, you come and ask me this every year, and I tell you the same thing. God has called me to teach third graders. And until I can't or I'm dead, I'm going to teach third graders. Those are great leaders, people who sense from God a calling. Now, you might be sitting here going, well, I'm out because I don't sense the calling. God can call in a variety of different ways. You know, maybe it started because your third grade child didn't have a third grade Sunday school teacher. And all of a sudden you get in there because that's how your, that was your entrance, that was your on-ramp, and you begin to see and realize that I, this is important stuff, this is valuable resources, this is good material, this is a good thing for me to do. I'm sharing the gospel with boys and girls. Gospel-centered kids ministry leaders feel and sense the call to, the God, to teach. All right. The next one that I have up here is that gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are committed to the mission of kids ministry. They're committed to the mission of kids ministry. Now, first of all, you need to figure out what the mission of kids ministry is. And at your church, it might look different than what it looks at my church. But we're committed to um, gospel transform. At my church, we're committed to gospel transformation, culture shaping through the lens of, fa of family ministry. That's, my, that's what our mission is. So you, if you're working in my Sunday school, in my church, then you're committed to that mission. You understand that the point of what we're doing is gospel transformation, that we're trying to build kids who are shaping the culture, not shaped by the culture, and we want to do that by empowering, equipping, and encouraging families. You need to, a gospel-centered kids ministry leader understands that the mission is not just to put a check mark, I got through the day. Even though sometimes Sundays I've felt that way. You know, can I go home now? But the, the point is the mission of the church, the mission of the kids ministry. Why are we there? The point is to share the gospel with boys and girls. All right, we're getting over here to our next point, our next tip, our next characteristic of a gospel-centered kids ministry leader is they are a good, <coughs> excuse me, they're a good learner. They're a good learner. Now, I told you earlier that I've been doing gospel, I've been doing kids ministry for 30 years, but I've not always thought of myself as a gospel-centered kids minister. And when I started thinking about this, it required that I was willing to learn. Now, some people think they know it all already, and I've often said that you don't know it all at all. You just think you know it all. <laughs> You're not, you don't know it all at all. I think you're here and it's evident that you don't think you're a know-it-all because it's Friday night in August, and you're here trying to learn something, and I applaud that. Gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are good learners. The next characteristic of a gospel-centered kids ministry leader is that they willing to put forth the effort. Now, if you got enlisted to be in children's ministry and they said, oh, it's, there's really nothing to it, you don't have to do much, then you were not told the whole truth. <laughs> because gospel-centered or any kind of children's ministry leader, it takes a little bit of work. If you're a Sunday school teacher, it's not just show up on Sunday morning. 
That's not going to play out well. It's uh, gospel-centered um, uh, go- uh, children's ministry leaders have to plan and prepare. I've often said if you don't have a plan, they do, <laughs> and it doesn't include the life point. You know, it doesn't include a Bible verse. You need to be re- willing to do the planning and put forth the effort. The next one is gospel-centered kids ministry leaders strive for excellence. They strive for excellence. Again, not just um, showing up on Sunday and um, not putting forth the effort that it takes to get it done or half doing what it is that you've been asked to do. Gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are striving for excellence. They want to put forth their best. um, Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically. It's something done for the Lord and not for man. So gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are striving for excellence. The next three I have, kind of, I like to talk about them at the same time because they all start with ease. Gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are equippers, empowerers, and encouragers. They see themselves as equippers, empowerers, and encouragers. We're equipping boys and girls. We're empowering them to go out and do what it is that God's called them to do. And we're encouraging them. We, as gospel-centered kids ministry leaders, we're equipping them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're encouraging them. Uh, we're empowering them. We're giving them opportunities in, in, the, in the, uh, the comfort and the safety of our church to, to know how to be gospel-caring um, boys and girls. And then we're encouraging them to go out there and do that. Gospel-centered kid, kids ministry leaders are encouraging, empowering, and equipping The last one, gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are missionaries. They see themselves as a missionary. They're not just sitting at the church and whosoever comes, they will teach. But what they are doing is they see, they're at Walmart and they see a third grader or somebody who might be a third grader. That's their mission field. Third graders are their mission field. Kids are their mission field. Um, They don't... They're not just uh, happy, they're not content with those who've come, but they see themselves uh, as missionaries to those who might come. So, you may have noticed up here two things. You may have noticed that all these tiles are, are mirrored on one side, but you also probably at this point have noticed that we've placed a cross on the wall here. Because gospel-centered kids ministry leaders are a reflection of Jesus. They're a reflection of Jesus. It's an old adage, but I think it's true. It may very well be the only Jesus, it may only, the only Bible that boys and girls ever see are what they see in you. So if we want to be successful, if we want to be gospel-centered leaders, then we're going to be a reflection of Jesus to the boys and girls. Number one, gospel-centered leaders. The next part I'd like to talk about, the next thing, is gospel-centered teaching. Gospel-centered teaching. This is when it took me a minute to to get my head wrapped around and being willing to understand and look at some things a little differently. Gospel-centered teaching. Now, I always heard the Gospels were what four books of the Bible? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, you know, that's the story of Jesus. That's the life of Jesus. A little bit of Acts in there at the end, at the beginning of Acts. And, but this idea of gospel-centered teaching says that 
not only is our Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the gospel, but the entire book is the gospel. From the very beginning in Genesis 1-1 to the very end in Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Now, that's not to say that the stories that we teach aren't true, because they are true. Every one of them are true, just as they're written are true. If the axe head floated, amen, amen, Jesus, but where is Jesus in that story? When we begin to look at the Bible through the lens of Christ, it opens the whole book up completely different than anything I've ever experienced before. J.D. Greer talks about um, the road to Emmaus where Jesus interpreted scripture not as a collection of random stories but as one big story about him. You'll remember the story. It was after the uh, death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and there's a lot going on in Jerusalem and two of the disciples not the big 12 but two disciples are going from Jerusalem to Emmaus it's about a seven mile journey and they're talking about what's going on and what had just happened and they're contemplating I suspect at this point they had not seen Jesus and they had not seen the resurrection um, in person but they'd heard about it and they're trying to figure out this isn't the way we thought it was going to play out and they're bantering a little bit, and Jesus shows up. Now, they didn't realize it was Jesus. They didn't understand or see that it was Jesus, and he comes alongside of them, and he says, well, what are you guys talking about? And one of my favorite verses in Scripture is when one of the disciples said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? I'm like, it happened to him. But I just think that's a funny, I like that verse. Are you the only one in Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? And and so Jesus started taking the scripture. They had the scrolls there. They had the Old Testament. The, some of the prophets had written about. And they, he began to point out and how all of it was pointing to Jesus. And how all of it was, he didn't say it quite like this, was pointing to him. They got to where they were going and um, uh, they were getting ready to go in and have dinner. And Jesus, uh, they said, Stay with us, Jesus, or stay with us. They still didn't know it was Jesus. Stay with us and, and have dinner with us. And he says, okay, he goes in and he breaks the bread. And when he broke the bread, their eyes opened and they could see it was Jesus. And for some reason, I don't know why he left. <laughs> He's gone. He had done what he had been, what he came to do. J.D. Greer goes on to say that for many evangelicals, the gospel has function solely as the entry right into Christianity. The prayer that we pray at the beginning of our relationship with Jesus. The gospel, however, is not just the diving board off which we jump into a pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. The pool itself. I picked up a book not long ago called by Jack Klumpenhauer called Show Them Jesus, Teaching the Gospel of Kids. And it's a pretty thick book, and if you want to get it and read it, I, I encourage you to. But three big points that has, has helped me as a Sunday school teacher, as a Bible study leader, three big takeaways from the book are questions that I now ask myself as I prepare Bible content for Sunday morning or whenever I'm teaching kids. Three questions. The first question is, what is God doing for his people in this story? 
So I love my, I was asked not long ago what, what my favorite book of the Bible is, and I, it's Genesis. I love Genesis because there's so many good Bible stories in Genesis. There's the creation, there's the flood, there's the, I mean, there's just great Bible stories all the way through the stories of Joseph. I, I love Genesis. But I've never thought of Genesis in terms of what's God doing more along the lines of what are all these people doing? You know, so really when you ask this question, you take the focus off of Noah and you put the focus on God. You take the focus off of Joseph and you put the focus on God. What is God doing for his people in this story? The second question is, how does God do the same for us, only better through Jesus? So now we've thought, we've taken the focus off of Noah and what God did through, um, and put it on God, where it should have been to begin with. We've, but now we're saying, what has God done only better for me through Jesus? Through Jesus. And all of a sudden, everything changes. The third question is, how does, God, how does believing this good news change how we live or how we teach? It changes everything. Because now I'm not talking about Noah anymore. I'm talking about God. and I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the gospel. Let's play that out a little bit. Let's play that out a little bit. Because we all have our favorite Bible stories, and I've chosen some of my favorite Old Testament Bible stories. The first one that I want us to look at is this idea, this, the story of Noah and the ark. Now, I know that's your favorite Bible story, too. I've had an opportunity to be in, yea, verily, hundreds of churches. <laughs> and every, almost every one of them have Noah painted somewhere <laughs> in their church. There's the ark. There's the... The, the animals, there's the rainbow, it's wonderful, and everybody loves it. Now, the truth of that story is it's probably the most, one of the most horrific stories in all of the Bible because God destroyed the world. But I think we should hang it over in our infant room. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why we lose them. <laughs> we scare them. All right, so what is God doing for his people in this story? What is God doing for his people in this story? He's saving a remnant. He looked at all of what he created and he couldn't find anything that he wanted except for one man and his family, Noah. And he loved mankind. He loved his creation too much to just totally wipe it out. He saved you and me through Noah or we wouldn't be here. We, all are, we are all descendants of Noah. He saved us through Noah. Well, what does God do only better for me through Jesus? <laughs> there, there is no one more wretched than the guy in the yellow shirt up front. There is no one more unworthy to be saved to, from the pits of hell, the floods of hell, than me. And he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. How does that change the way I think and teach? It changes everything. It's no longer about Noah. It's the, Noah is the catalyst to get us to what it's really about, which is the gospel that can transform and sticks. So, God rescued Noah and his family from the flood. 
The story of Noah points us ahead to a greater rescue, a greater rescuer. God's son Jesus, the only perfectly righteous one, came to take the, per- take the per- ugh, punishment for our sin. By trusting in him, we're saved from the punishment our sin deserves. That's a new story for me. Now, I often say that God wants to speak to the boys and girls from the overflow of what he's taught you in your heart. That's how he wants to teach the boys and girls that you teach in Sunday school, in your Bible study, in your opportunities that you teach boys and girls, from the overflow of what he's taught me in my heart. I've been teaching the story of Noah probably 30 times, at least once a year for the past 30 years. And oftentimes I'm thinking, I I don't got any more to learn about Noah until I umbrellaed this idea of the gospel was in the story of Noah, did it become very much alive. Now, do I tell the story differently? Probably not so much, but do I get to a different point? Quite often, yes. I get to a different point. Because the story is the story. It's the story. It is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But when we take the emphasis off Noah and put the emphasis on God and what he did for us through his, the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Let's look at another story. Another favorite story is Joseph and his brothers. I can relate to Joseph. I had two brothers who would have sold me into slavery in a minute. Here you have... Uh, Joseph, and he's done really nothing wrong except be a bit of, maybe he's a bit of a punk. I don't know. His dad favored him more than the others. That's probably wrong. But here he is kind of hanging out with his brothers, showing off his coat of many colors, and they dig a pit and put him in the pit. And then they decide, instead of killing him, I think it was Reuben who said, whoa, 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 whoa. They decide to sell him into slavery. And then they go back and lie to their dad. But they sell, he sell, they sell him into slavery. And in the process of all of that and all of the different things, Potiphar's wife, the dreams that he had, Noah somehow lands up at the very tip top of, of, the, of Egypt, next to, right, uh, right next to the Pharaoh. Joseph's right there. There's a dream and Joseph interprets it. Pharaoh puts him in charge of taking all this seven years of great harvest and storing them up. And certainly, sure enough, seven years of poor, nothing, famine. And guess who gets hungry? Joseph's brothers. And so here they come across and over into Egypt. And they're standing at, Pharaoh's, at, at Joseph's feet. They didn't know it was Joseph. And I, I, one of my favorite, another favorite verse of the Bible is what God, what, uh, what man had meant for harm, what you had meant for harm, God has used for good. What was God doing in this story with, with Joseph? He was saving a remnant. If Joseph hadn't gone through all the trials and all the issues and all the things that had happened, he would, the, the, there would be no Israel. Because he was placed in a position where he could interpret the dream and then do what it was that needed to be done in order to save his brothers and the family of 70 that came across. Well, how does God do the same for us, only better through Jesus? How does God take, take a mess, take a famine, and give us eternal life through Jesus? 
And how does that change and how we live and how we teach on Sunday morning? God had a plan for Joseph's life. He allowed Joseph to suffer in order to rescue a whole nation. God planned for Jesus to suffer so that me and you and all people from all nations could be saved. Joseph isn't the main character. The main character is Jesus. And we can teach boys and girls in such a way that they see Jesus through the story, the true story of Joseph. Another favorite story, Joseph got him to Egypt, but Moses had to get him out of Egypt. What was God doing for his people in this story? And how does, he, how does God do the same for us? Only better through Jesus. And how does that change how we live and how we teach? Well, Moses led his people from Egypt. At Passover, God spared the Israelites from judgment by requiring the blood of a lamb. Jo Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and God provided a way for them to escape through the Red Sea. The Bible says that Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People who trust in Jesus escape the penalty for sin and have eternal life. Moses is not who I want my kids to be like. I want them to be like Jesus. Need to take the focus off of Moses and put the focus on Jesus. I've got several of these. Joshua and Jericho. I love that story where they march around seven times, you know, and finally the walls come tumbling down. Um, finally, the block area in preschool makes sense because we can build up the, the walls of Jericho and they can march around there and they can march around there and they can march around there and then that little bratty boy can go, whoosh, you can take it all down. It all finally can make sense. But what was God doing for his people in this story of Jericho, the walls of Jericho? He was giving them what he had promised them. How does God do that only better through Jesus for you and for me? He's given us what he has promised us. And how does that change how we live and how we teach? God fought for his people and led them into the promised land. Just as God defeated Jericho for the Israelites, Jesus defeats his enemies and leads believers into the promised land of eternity. The last, not, not the last one, David and Goliath. We all love David and Goliath as well because David and Goliath, David was a preteen at this point, you know, 13, 12, <coughs> and and he, he's a, a, a modern day hero because he took down Goliath. I love that story and I love telling the rest of the story. For a long time I didn't know the rest of the story because nobody in my childhood ever taught me the rest of the story where after he takes him down with a slingshot he goes and takes his head and whacks it off with his sword, Goliath's sword, and then parades around with a head on the sword. I like, you know, preaching boys love the story. Uh, but what is God doing for his people in this story? story. He's saving the people. He has provided David to do the deed through Jesus, through, uh, through the power of, the, of God. What does God do the same for us? Only better through Jesus. And how does that change the way we live? David was not a big strong warrior, but he trusted God. David, God gave David power. When God sent his son to earth, Jesus, he didn't come as a big, strong warrior either. But by dying on the cross and coming back to life, Jesus showed his power to save sinners. That's what this story's about. I don't want the boys and girls in my class to be like David. Um, Bathsheba, remember, 
I don't want them to be him, them to be like David. I want them to be like Jesus. I want them to strive to be like Jesus. I want to put the center of this of our biblical content on the only one worthy of it being the center of to of to whom. <laughs> the last one is one of my not Daniel and the lion's den. I want to. We're running out of time. Samson. I love the story of Samson. I think I relate to Samson in a lot of ways. I'm very strong and handsome. I have long curly hair. I, I like the story of Samson. But what, you know, you'll recall that Samson um, uh, had never had his hair cut and his strength was in his hair, but he didn't tell anybody. He couldn't tell anybody. But there was this woman, Delilah. Oh, Samson, tell me this story. Tell, why, why are you so strong? And he gives her up. Uh, you know, a, a, a frauded story. He tells her not the truth, and she gets a little, little pouty. Then he tells her another one, and he, she gets pouty, and finally he says, well, I'm going to miss this if I don't tell her the truth. And he tells her the truth, and he goes to sleep. They cut his hair off, and they bind him up, and he, and he has his eyes plucked out, and he is the gristmill mule. And he finally comes to his senses and he finally understands his sinfulness and he asks God to give him strength one last time. And he's got his hands between the pillars and he pushes those pillars down and all of that temple falls down on the heads of the Philistines. What was God doing though really in that story? It's the stories about God's love and God's grace and God's provision. What does God do for us only better through Jesus, through the love and grace and provision? And how does that change the way we teach and the way we live? Samson's sin led to his own death, but God used his death to deliver the Israelites from their enemies. Samson's story reminds us of Jesus. Now, Jesus never sinned, but God sent him to die on the cross and raise, rise again to rescue believers from sin and give them eternal life. I don't want my boys and girls to live like Moses. I don't want them to act. Or, 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 I do want them to have faith. I do want them to be uh, righteous. I do want them to be after God's own heart. But at the end of the day, those are sinners. And when we teach boys and girls to emulate sinners, and then they grow up and do it, we act surprised. <laughs> we only want them to focus on Christ. And we've got to, if we want this thing to stick, if we want to change the statistic, if we want to make a really lasting transformational difference in the life of a kid, the only thing that gives spiritual transformation is Jesus. And so we look for ways to bring it back around to the only thing that will make an eternal difference for them. Next, I'd like to talk about gospel-centered kids' ministry, the mission the mission of gospel-centered kids' ministry. We need to pour the gospel into our kids, not with the aim of only filling them up, but with the goal of moving the gospel through them. The goal of moving the gospel through them. For years and years and years, I was guilty of seeing boys and girls as buckets. Buckets. I saw the children in my ministry and my Sunday school class as buckets. Buckets that we poured the gospel, poured got biblical content into. We would pour that biblical content into them with hopes that somehow, in some way, they would overflow somehow. We would take 
where is my prop? Here it is. We would take the story of Moses and we would put it in the bucket. We would take the story of Daniel and the lion's den and we would put it in the bucket. We would take Joseph and his brothers and in the bucket it would go. Joshua and Jericho. Jonah and the... Uh, <laughs> Noah and the ark, David and Goliath, Samson, pouring these things into the bucket with hopes that somehow it would slosh out and it would make sense at some level. That's what I thought my job was as a third grade Sunday school teacher, to pour biblical knowledge into the bucket. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think a bucket is made for? For holding things. That's exactly right. A bucket is made for holding things. We need to see boys and girls not only as buckets, but we also need to see boys and girls as pipes. Pipes. Because while buckets hold things, pipes move things. And we need boys and girls to not only hold what we've heard them, what we've been teaching them, but we need to take that, their, that um, what they've learned and move that out into their world, into their community, into their mission field. We need boys and girls to not only be um, knowledgeable of the Bible, we need boys and girls to be Acts 1-8 Christians who go out and uh, are great commission Christians in their world. They're not just going into, uh, they're not just holding on to the content, but they're also spreading that content out into their world. Well, where's, you'd say, Bill, where's their world? Where do they go? What is their smaller buckets? And I want to just share with you that they do have a world. They do have a place to go. They go to school. I often hear people say that we can't get the gospel in the public schools anymore. And I'd say, yeah, we can. We just have to get the boys and girls to take it there for us. Because they're not turning the kids away. They're telling us to bring them to them. And yet we don't have, we haven't prepared them to be on mission boys and girls. In their clubs, there's been a lot said late recently about the uh, Boy Scouts. and, And maybe even the Girl Scouts. But all the different scouting clubs and things. Why can't we teach boys and girls to be on mission, Acts 1 8 gospel-taking boys and Christians into their clubs, into their schools, even into their home. Particularly during Vacation Bible School, if your church is like my church, about 50% of the kids who come to Vacation Bible School are actually uh, enrolled in your church. The other 50%, um, about 22% of those, are enrolled and not involved in any church anywhere. And we need to be allowing, uh, feeding into boys and girls, not only with the idea of their personal gospel transformation, but for them to become missionaries even into their own homes where their parents may not know God. Sporting events. Anybody have kids who are involved in in, um, uh, 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 travel ball? I mean, it's, everybody's doing travel ball these days. And so how do we um, penetrate a world uh, that's not coming to us? Through the kids. 
But only if we're willing to teach them and to, to take the gospel and give them privilege and incur, equip them and, and encourage them and empower them in, a, in the safe environment of our, of our churches to know how to take the gospel to their neighborhood and to their hobbies and the things that they do for fun outside of church. All of these are places that boys and girls can go. All of these are opportunities for boys and girls to be on mission. But you know what? If we don't teach them to be on mission, if we don't teach with the end in mind that they're going out there to be the gospel in their school, in their clubs, in their home, in their neighborhood, in their hobbies, in their sports, then they won't. Then they won't. They won't do it if we don't teach them to do it. It's rare for a person to grow a spiritual discipline after they've become an adult. It is harder, let me put it that way. It is harder. My parents did a lot of things right, they did a lot of things wrong, but one of the things that I am so thankful that they did right was they taught me how to tithe. They taught me the spiritual discipline of being a steward of tithing. Um, and how did they do that? They started when I was really young. When I first got my first allowance, I got 10 dimes. And back in those days, we had the envelope system at our church. And my dad said, he gave me the 10 dimes, and he said, go get your envelope. It was Saturday night, and so I went and got my envelope. I brought my envelope back to where my dad was and my 10 dimes. He said, put one of those dimes in that envelope. I said, but dad, that's 10 pieces of candy. I can't do that. He said, son, all ten of these dimes belong to, belong to the Lord. He only requires you to give one back. Okay, so I put the dime in the envelope. I got a raise. <laughs> uh, my, I got to up to ten quarters. And he said, son, go get your envelope. Put one of those quarters in. Well, now we're up to 25 pieces of candy. It was a struggle. When I gave, then I got up to ten $1 bills. That's my allowance. Never was it a $10 bill, but a ten $1 bills. And he said, go get your envelope. Later in life, I had my first job, and I had to hand my dad my check, because I didn't have a checking account. And he took it to Capital City Bank in Hateful, Georgia, and he cashed my check. And he brought it back, and denominations where I had to go get my envelope. And then I grew up and I, I worked for the denomination for the past 17 years and I make hundreds of thousands of dollars now. And, <laughs> and I tithe. Now I'm not telling you that story because I want you, I want to pat on the back because there are a lot of things I don't do right. I'm just sharing the one good thing that my parents really taught me that is stuck. I've got a lot of friends who struggle with tithing. They really do. They, and I, that's not been my struggle. And the reason it's not been my struggle is because I started when I was young. And it's just always been what I did. I wish they had taught me how to share my faith. And I wish they had given me opportunities to do that when I was young or to watch them do that. I wish they had encouraged me and equipped me to do it and teach me how to do it and then put me out there and stand behind me and help me do it a little bit. 
because I think it wouldn't be so much of a struggle now when I try to do it. Any of the spiritual disciplines. We need to teach boys and girls now when they're in third grade, when they're in second grade, maybe when they're in four-year-olds it's at the right you know, age appropriately, how to share their faith and how to be on mission and, and how to be gospel-loving and dis, uh, difference-makers in their world and culture-shapers in their world, not being ch- shaped by the culture, but out there shaping the culture. That doesn't come natural. That doesn't come natural. And I want to encourage you as you consider what your part in this whole thing of gospel-centered kids' ministry. Are we helping boys and girls to be gospel-centered in their own lives and equipping them to share the gospel as they go out? The last one I want us to talk about tonight is families. Gospel-centered families. When the church and the home come together to wrap around the child, we will see the gospel transform. Not just the heart of the child, but full families. Full families. We have the privilege of partnering with families. At the end of the day, it really isn't your job or mine to be the spiritual leader in the lives of children. It's the family. It's the parents. It's their privilege to do that. We get the privilege of partnering with them. Now, some of the boys and girls in our churches, they don't have uh, parents who are Christian, and they don't know, they wouldn't know how to lead their kids spiritually, and so our partnership steps it up a notch at some level. But at the end of the day, I think, again, one of the pillars of, 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 of my kids' ministry is empowering and encouraging and equipping families. Because I believe families have more influence over their child than I do. So, what can we do to help create these, this gospel-centered family? The first thing we have to do is help boys and girls, families, and to know that they've experienced gospel transformation. We need boys and girls, their parents, to experience the gospel. So, we may need to understand that our role as gospel-centered kids ministry leaders isn't just to share the gospel with kids, but it's also to share it with parents and families so that they will experience gospel transformation. The second tip I have here is that we need to partner with leaders. In my last class, I talked a little bit about this when we talk about connecting with families. If you have adult leaders in your church who their role, their assignment is to work with adults, then those are the people we need to be partnering with. Because they're in a class somewhere else in this church learning how to do that and we're over here doing it with the, on the kids' side of it, we need to partner together and go hand in hand to reach these families. It's not just my responsibility to reach families. It's our responsibility to reach families. And we have the uh, opportunity with people in our churches, in some of our larger churches, there are ministers to adults, minister to young adults. In some of our smaller churches, there are Sunday, adult Sunday school teachers. There are young adult Sunday school teachers that we can partner with to reach and help families be gospel-centered. Number three, we need to be champions of families. We need to be champions of families. I'm embarrassed to say that that's not always had been the, the, the mode that I've been in. It can be very frustrating, those of you who are in children's ministry, to work with parents. 
It can be very frustrating. I've even had heard myself say, I don't say anymore, but I've heard myself say, everybody wants to have a baby and nobody wants to parent. You know, they want me to, they want to bring them to the church and drop them off and they go on and have a good fun time with donuts and coffee. And I, they want me to parent their child. They don't want to take them to worship because they want me to lead them in worship so that they don't have to parent their child in worship. I need to quit that mess. True or not true, I need to quit saying that. I need to be the biggest champion of families in my whole church. I need, to, I need families to say to me, or say about me, He loves us. He supports us. He thinks that we can do it even when we don't think we can do it. They need that in their lives. Parents, parenting is hard. Parenting is not for sissies. And the reason why a lot of them don't do it is because they don't know how to do it well. We need to help them do it well. We need to encourage them. And fourth, we need to equip them to be able to do what it is that God's called them to do. To raise up their child. To be a gospel-centered kid. To be a gospel-centered Christian. To share the gospel with their family, with their friends, in their schools, in their hobbies, all these places we've talked about. Parents encouraging them to do that, but we need to equip parents to help them. It's not that they don't want to be good parents. Most parents who struggle don't know how. It's the most important, one of the most important jobs you can ever have, and you don't even have to take a test. You have to take a test to drive, but you don't have to take a test to parent. They don't know what to do. And we can help them. We can champion them and then we can equip them, encourage them, empower them. And finally, gospel-centered families, we need to encourage families to live out the gospel. And I'm going to just tell you, I've been in this thing 30 years and I don't think the church has always been really good at encouraging, uh, encouraging families to live out the gospel. Now, they want us to live, they want you, we want you to live right, we want you to, you know, be a witness, but we don't give you a chance, because every time we, we have you up at the church, all day Sunday, Monday night for visitation, all night Wednesday, we don't, when are you in the community to be the gospel? How can we encourage them to be the gospel in the community? I can think of two ways real quick, and there's probably hundreds. It's not what I say, but maybe it'll take you somewhere. Fall festivals coming. A lot of churches have harvest festivals, fall festivals, fall parties, whatever you want to call it. Um, I know churches who spend thousands, literally, maybe even tens of thousands of dollars on fall festival. And all the people come to the church and then they go home. And we try to care get some names and we try to, you know, if we're really good and we're really serious about what God's called us to do, then we try to gather prospects and we try to do something with that, but most of us aren't really all that successful at it. What if we found 10 families in our church who were willing to have fall festival in their front yard? And instead of coming up to the church where there's 10 blow-ups, we as a church, we equip, and maybe that's a lot, but we equip the church, we equip that family with a blow-up toy. And instead of coming up to the church where there's a thousand hot dogs, we give each family a hundred hot dogs. And instead of them coming to us, they're now in their front yard being the church. Being the church in their front yard. But they never, they've never dreamed about that. They've never thought about that. Another one I can think of is Backyard Kids Club. 
you know, we do vacation Bible school. Bring them to the church. Bring them to the church. Bring them to the church. And yet, we could equip and encourage families to do um, a lot better at making, at building relationships with our boys, with their, with the fam, with their neighbors and families there in their, if it was in their front yard. Now, we call it backyard, but I think it ought to be in the front yard. <laughs> Um, now, I will just have a little caveat. My friend Melita Thomas is here, who's the Vacation Bible School Specialist for Lifeway. I think it's a both and. I think we look for ways to, do, to get them, build a relationship with them in the front yard, and then invite them to the church. And maybe that's at Vacation Bible School at the church, or maybe that's at Christmas celebration pageant, or whatever it is. But we have to figure out how to help families build relationships inside the church, I mean outside the church, if we're going to get them inside the church. This whole era, if we build it, they will come, is over. We have some of the most beautiful buildings of any denomination, any religious organizations in the world, and half of our buildings in the Southern Baptist Convention are empty, closing churches by the hundreds every year in the Southern Baptist Convention. So they're not going to come just because we open the door and put it on the sign. We've got to figure out how to build relationships outside the church, and we can help our families to understand that they can be on mission they can be the gospel in their neighborhood, in their world. Just like these boys and girls over here in all these different places, families can do that too. I don't know. I don't know where you are. This may be crazy. This may be craziness in your mind. But I'm telling you, I'm not willing to spend the next 11 years of my ministry and come back with the statistic uglier than it already is. I'm not willing to continue to do the same thing over and over. What's that? Insanity. The same thing over and over and expect different results. I think this might be the thing. If anything can transform a child, if anything can transform a leader, if anything can transform a family, it's Jesus. And when we take the emphasis off of all the rest and put it on Him and then equip, encourage, and empower our kids and our families to go out and be the gospel, I think we're going to see a different result. I'm banking on it. I'm going to spend the next 11 years working that way, maybe longer. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege of teaching boys and girls Your story. And God, it's a big deal what you've given us to do. And God, we've not been, we've not done the wrong thing, we've just not added the right thing. And God, I pray that you'd help us to open our minds and our hearts up to, to tweaking our message, our ministry, our emphasis to what we already always knew it was but maybe we hadn't done it intentionally. God, I pray that you'd help us to be intentional, gospel-centered kids ministry leaders. In Jesus' name, amen.